Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Today with me on Everyday Theology, I have a real honor of having Mr. Bob Inglis with me. He's a former congressman from South Carolina, and he's the executive director of Republican Republic EN. I want to make sure I get that right, Republic EN. So thank you so much, Bob, with uh, for being here with me today. Great to be with you, Aaron. Thank you. If you wouldn't mind uh, just letting our listeners know a little bit about you, your story, your past, and where you got to where you are today. Well, let's see. Uh, in Long the, question. <laughs> in the beginning, uh, let's see. Well, there's, there's a, a mom and a dad who loved each other very much. Uh, and so, uh, no, so I, uh, let's see, I grew up in uh, Bluffton, South Carolina, and uh, uh uh, went uh, to Duke and uh, college uh, for college and then University of Virginia for law school, practiced law for a couple of years um, in Savannah, Georgia, moved uh, to Greenville, South Carolina, um, and then uh, practiced commercial real estate law there until running for Congress. We can get into that later, I suppose. But um, along the way, I, um, you know, since this is, uh, it's, it's wonderful to talk with somebody in the, uh, in, in, in a faith frame that's really about faith, uh, you know, a lot of people that operate in the climate space in the faith frame are actually theological liberals, if there's such a thing. In other words, they, they maybe have um, not such a high regard for scripture um, yeah. um, and um, are very permissive view, I should say, of scripture maybe is a polite way to put it. Um, and they're political liberals as well. And so they they come into the climate conversation that way. And it seems, um, well, it's it's not, it doesn't scratch when you get to people who have a high view of scripture, um, who can tell pretty quickly that the people talking to them don't share their, uh, their commitments, their faith. And so anyway, so uh, for those who are wondering, you know, about this guy who's getting ready to maybe talk about climate in the midst of uh, <laughs> faith, is he, is he one of those, you know, a low view of scripture and, uh, and uh, a permissive view of scripture and a, uh, and political liberal. Well, it's like this. I, I, I grew up in the Episcopal church, uh, going to church every Sunday um, in college came to faith, understanding that, it's a it's a relationship, not a religion, um, right? And um, so um, that uh, led me for a long time into into the Presbyterian Church in America, a very conservative denomination with uh, great teaching, uh, scripture teaching, and then um, after that long sojourn, now I've returned to the Episcopal Church, uh, where um, there's a room for the mystery of Christ in the Episcopal Church. Uh, the great strength of the Christian Church in America is fabulous teaching. The weakness is maybe uh, it gets uh, everything cut and dried and maybe a little <laughs> bit cut and dried because you cannot cut and dry God. He, is, uh, yeah. he will uh, uh, always surprise us with some mystery, uh, something beyond what we think we've got him all figured out. Um, and so... Um, so that's uh, that's where I come from, and and uh, by the way, by the way, political liberal. Uh, you know, uh, after twelve years in Congress, just to give you some numbers from outside rating groups, ninety-three American Conservative Union rating. <clears throat> that's an A in most places, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hundred percent Christian Coalition, hundred percent National Right to Life, 
A with the NRA, zero with the Americans for Democratic Action, that's a liberal group, and 23 by some mistake with the labor union, the AFL-CIO. So um, those, <laughs> those ratings would indicate a pretty conservative fella. Um, which which begs the first question, I think. Um, for, for our listeners, I haven't really ever explained this, but you know, I grew up in a deep South Christian home. Um, Jesus was basically akin to being Republican. Being a Christian was being Republican. And growing up, I grew up in a tradition that said, you know, whatever we do, it it doesn't really quite matter how we take care of the earth because God's going to just blow this earth up eventually. And he's going to give us a brand spanking new one. That's going to be better than this one. So, you know, do as much as you want with, you know, fossil fuels, take as much as you want. Uh, don't worry about over farming and none of it matters because we're just going to get a new one. And that's the kind of Republican, uh, conservative mindset that I kind of had built in me within my Christian upbringing. And yet here you are a, uh, at the time, you know, being a congressman, being a Republican congressperson, you start caring about climate change and climate action. What for you, what kind of brought you to the place of saying you can be a conservative and you should care for the climate? Yeah, well, you know, for me, it's a three-step metamorphosis. You know, I, I, my first six years in Congress, I, I said climate change is nonsense. Um, I didn't know anything about it except that Al Gore mm. was for it. Um, and if Al yeah. was for it, then I'm against it. Um, okay, so I admit that's pretty ignorant, but that's the way it was for, <laughs> uh, for six years. I mean, that's what that's exactly what I was told growing up as well. So yeah. So uh, then come then uh, let's see. Uh, uh, I was uh, out of Congress for six years um, doing commercial real estate law again in Greenville, South Carolina. Had the opportunity to run for the same seat again in 2004. And my son, the eldest of our five kids, came to me. He was voting for the first time that year because he just turned 18. And he said to me, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. Huh. Um, uh, his, his four sisters agreed, his mother agreed, new constituency was born, you know, um, these people would <laughs> change the locks on the doors. And so, um, so, uh, and my son was going to vote for me no matter what. Right. I mean, it was, he wasn't making a classic interest group threat, you know, do this or right. do that. He was really saying, I think, dad, I love you and you can be better than you were before. So how about make this English 2.0? the new and improved hmm. version, you know, and be relevant to my future and your four daughters' futures. And so that was step one. Um, step two was going to Antarctica with the House Science Committee and seeing the evidence in the ice core drillings. Hmm. And then uh, step three was another science committee trip um, and something of a spiritual awakening, which seems improbable on a godless science committee trip because we all know <laughs> all, all scientists are godless, right? Um, all right, uh, yeah. Well, apparently not because I was uh, this Aussie climate scientist was showing us uh, the glories of the Great Barrier Reef and the challenge of uh, coral bleaching. And yeah. I could see uh, in the way that he was interacting with what he was showing me, that he was worshiping God. He was not worshiping the creation. He was worshiping the creator behind the creation. I could tell. Um, um, and so uh, without words, you know, he communicated all that in the way right. that his eyes would light up about things. His voice would be so excited about something he just shown me down below and you know, come to the surface and he'd say, talk about it. His face was all lit up. I mean, that he was just his worship for him. And so later we had a chance to talk, and he told me about conservation changes he was making in his life in order to love God and love people. Um, uh, Scott Heron, who's now become a very dear friend, he, he takes his bike to work. He does without air conditioning as much as possible in Townsville, Australia, a pretty hot place. And yeah. his family's clothes out on the line to avoid using the electric dryer all to consciously love people coming after us. So I got right inspired. I want to be like Scott. 
uh, loving God and loving people. So I came home and introduced the Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act of 2009. Um, uh, that's a revenue neutral, border adjustable carbon tax. Um, hmm. uh, those, those, those last two words get you in real trouble. Uh, carbon <laughs> tax. <laughs> uh, now the, the first words are, you know, revenue neutral man means we're going to cut taxes somewhere else or dividend all the r- revenue back to the citizenry. So there's no growth of government. If people could hear that, they might say, oh, that'd be all right. Um, and then uh, the border adjustable means we're going to apply it to imports so that we basically muscle China into the same thing. Uh, that'd be all right. And maybe that'd make it so that carbon tax would be okay. But you got to, uh, people f- fixate first on that carbon tax. And uh, unfortunately, I did that in the fourth district of South Carolina. And after 12 years in Congress, I got 29% of the vote in a Republican runoff. And the other guy got the other 71% of the vote. So um, wow, yeah. ever, ever since that spectacular face plant, I've been out to convince fellow conservatives that it is in fact, conservative to act on climate change. Yeah, which which I think is a, a an interesting story. I think in in the multiple kind of metamorphosis there, uh, because I would I would assume to some degree that that my story, while I didn't have any kids uh, telling me that they weren't going to vote for me uh, <laughs> to start with my change, you know, comes to a place of of you know, a theological spectrum, what I was told was going to happen at the end of the earth or what we call end times and this getting a new earth. Right. And, and then just also the, the being awakened to the caring for others through the caring of creation became fundamental for me to say, Hey, this is actually important. And I think that if God loved this creation, then God wants us to love it as best we can as well. And that becomes problematic when we talk politically. Um, as, as you just kind of mentioned with your, your, you know, your election there, where do we go? How do we handle trying to be, uh, if, if whoever's listening to this would say, I identify as a conservative, how do you be a conservative and, care for climate when there are times it seems like those two things are actually antithesis to each other? Yeah, it's so such an important question because it's like this. If you're a conservative and you're concerned about climate change, you're among the most important people in the world. Uh, the left is going about as far as it can go, you know, to quote a line from Oklahoma, you know. Um, they're going about as far as they can go. Um, this isn't going to happen we're not going to take action without American conservatives and especially American conservatives of faith uh, getting into this conversation. And so, but what you just started, professor, I'll be your student for a minute and tell me whether I'd, you know, here we are talking about everyday theology. So you you can tell me, professor, whether I do okay on this quiz. Here's where where I understand that eschatology thing you're talking about. Um, okay, I used to be pan mill. You know what that is? It's all going to pan out in the end, so it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. but, uh, but then I finally came to understand it from a guy who, a, 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 a PCA minister, President Church of America minister, who, who then became an Anglican. Um, and he diagnosed my problem. Uh, he said to me, okay, English, uh, talk to me about what you think about the end times eschatology. And so I talked to him and he said, so here's the thing, English, there's three things, three ways to look at this. One is a premillennial view. That is that things get worse and worse. And then Christ returns and the judgment and uh, the earth goes away, I guess. Um, second is a millennial view, which is that good and evil compete all the way to the end all the way from the fall to the end. And it just manifests itself in different ways. You know, it, in Roman times, they, th- they threw live born babies out on the trash heaps and Christians went and gathered up those babies and saved them. Yeah. Now, now it's in an abortion clinic that that happens. And so it's not that 
the sin has changed. It's just the same sin. It's just happening in different ways. And so that's the amillennial mm-hmm. view. And then the, the postmillennial, he told me, was that the kingdom comes when things happen. When, when Wilberforce outlawed slavery in the British Empire, the kingdom took a step closer. That, yeah. that the ways of Christ were being honored and that the kingdom is coming. And so after all this, he says, Angus, here's your thing. You are an optimistic uh, millennial. You, you know that sin has been there since the beginning, but even the end, and we're going to struggle with it all the way to the end. But you want it to be, you want to be William Wilberforce. You want to help with climate. You want to, you, you want to make it so good things happen here for the common good. And so you're an optimistic uh, millennial. He said to me, the problem is for you, Angus, in South Carolina, most believers are, are premillennial. And right. so, so you, you, every time that you were talking this optimism in free enterprise and free people engaged in free enterprise, solving the problem of climate change, you were, you were challenging their thought that, no, everything needs to burn up. So if we can just uh, burn it up and use it up, um, okay, because uh, it's going to burn up anyway. Um, right. But I, I, I really, uh, so I remember one time being in New York by myself, uh, I found myself in this courtyard of this restaurant uh, eating by myself. So I decided to call up a President Church of America friend, pastor, and I said, uh, you know, Tim, do I need to change everybody from pre-millennial to at least optimistic amillennial in order to succeed in this climate endeavor I'm about? <laughs> he, he said, oh, no, Bob, don't try to do that. That's impossible. <laughs> just, just talk to them about creation care. And, of course, that's that's what I hope we can do is, is I don't I don't need to change anybody from being a pre-millennial if they want to be pre-millennial into being like me and optimistic amillennial. But um um, but, um, you know, we, we, we can see the value of, uh, caring for creation. So I want to ask a couple questions so, wait, here. Wait, I mean, wait a minute, you got to tell me what kind of grade I got on that paper. Yeah, professor. No. Yes. Uh, so a plus in my book, <laughs> Okay, good. <laughs> I think that all sounded wonderful to me. Um, so if, if I had my own school, you'd pass and okay, congrats. Good. <laughs> that means literally nothing to anyone else. <laughs> um, uh, so, so my question, I think, would really kind of focus. You, you mentioned in your story that you, you know, you were on the committee, this committee for science, and that you got to go see some of these things. Uh, like, like I'm very jealous that you got to go to Antarctica. Um, and, and actually kind of observe there and talk with scientists who I'm with you growing up. I, I again was kind of taught this weird dichotomy that scientists were against God and Christians had everything they needed in terms of science. Um, where, where, in what way do you say you got to see actually the negative effects on climate and, how did it change your mind? Because I think there's so much statistics out there. There's so much stats. There's so much science that would actually say, yes, the climate is changing. Yes, we're seeing negative impact. But so many people just don't listen to it. So how did it affect you being on that science committee? And how did you actually kind of be awoken to this reality is actually changing? Well, you know, it's it's... It's true. We make climate science very complex, but actually at its essence, it's really pretty simple um, and quite understandable. Here's where now you're switching from everyday theology to be my science teacher in high school. Okay, so this is really the basics of it is just high school science. Um, Now, the modeling of it, that's that's post PhD uh, stuff. That's very complicated. But the basics are this. Um, you know, if I'm burning trees in my fireplace this winter that fell on my farmette, you know, we live here on a 27-acre farmette. That's where you're pretending to be a farmer. You're not really a farmer. We've got, <laughs> we got chickens and horses in a great big garden, and we pretend to be farmers. Um, uh, you know, I love my tractor, and I drive around my tractor. Um, so um, <clears throat> so if, I, if I take those trees that have fallen in my woods, chop them up, bring them in, burn them in the fireplace, 
I'm, uh, I'm accelerating the process by which that carbon dioxide would return to the atmosphere from the rotting of those trees in my woods. I mean, if I leave mm. them in the woods to rot, uh, the carbon that's sequestered in that tree is going to combine with oxygen over time and it's going to float back into the atmosphere. The living trees in my forest then are grabbing that carbon dioxide, uh, using it as in this amazing God-given process of photosynthesis, uh, which we, we learned in high school, um, they, they turn it into oxygen for us. It's just incredible. They take the CO2, they stick the carbon in themselves, they let back out the oxygen. And in God's incredible design, we are blessed with breathable air. Okay, so, so now if I burn that tree, I'm just accelerating that process by a little bit. No big deal. Right. But if I go deep in the earth and pull up trees long gone, we won't go into how long it is. I mean, uh, it's long enough to turn it into <laughs> long uh, enough, yeah. long enough to turn it into coal and natural gas and petroleum, the fossil fuels. I bring those to the surface and I burn them. I'm changing the chemistry of the air. Nobody objects to that. Not the most ardent opponent of what we say at RepublicEN.org about climate change can object to that. And they don't. Because it's a chemical equation. You, it's got an equal sign in it, just like we learned in high school chemistry. And yeah. you, you, it's got a balance on both ends of that equation. So nobody disputes that, that you bring up those, those trees long gone in a different geologic, geological time period. You burn them. You change the chemistry of the air. Then the physics of light. Okay, this may be a little bit beyond high school physics, but it's really... I took physics uh, energy principles. It's physics for political science majors in college. Okay. So it's not real physics, <laughs> but it's like this physics it has been known since the 1800s is that sunlight enters through this atmosphere. It strikes the earth, creates radiant heat. That heat doesn't all go back into space because of the presence of the greenhouse gases. Thank the Lord. If it did, if we did just zoom in, zoom out, well, we'd be so like the moon, right? Hot when the sun's on us and cold at night when the sun's against uh, on the other side. Right. So, so we have this wonderful moderating influence. And so, you, but you put more up there and you get more tramping. It's just, that's, that's really pretty simple. And again, nobody objects to that. Not even the most ardent uh, climate skeptic would say that that's wrong. Here's where it comes to the dispute is how to model it, how to decide yeah. how much sea level rise there'll be in my hometown of Bluffton, South Carolina, as compared to, say, Charleston, South Carolina. Because there, there are going to be differences between those two places. It depends on the speed of the Gulf Stream. Passing by 70 miles off the coast is going to determine some part of climate change, of, of sea level rise there. And it'll depend on the There'll be differences, even in the 90 miles from Bluffton to Charleston. Um, so modeling all that and telling us 50 years from now what's going to be, well, that's a hard thing to do. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and it has all kinds of assumptions and you can pull them apart. But in the main, what it shows is that the chemistry and the physics show that we're changing the Earth's atmosphere. Right. Right. And, and so the question becomes, what does that do? Yeah. And what does it do is it means that, you know, uh, to some extent, some things may be good. You know, like uh, if you're in Minnesota, you might say, hey, uh, less harsh winters. And that can be wonderful. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, on the other hand, um, you know, these polar vortexes, remember all the talk about that? I mean, mm -hmm. here's, here's an example of something that could happen to that. Yeah, Minnesota might get a little bit warmer in the winter. They'd be happy about that. But the reason it'd be so, perhaps, we're, I don't think the scientists are 100% sure about this, but the thought is that the jet stream flies across the Arctic and it's just this wind that just blows from west to east. And it essentially keeps the cold air from coming down into the lower 48. But as that pattern gets thrown off by the 
relatively high degree of warming in the Arctic, um, that what would be a zipping wind going across the Arctic now becomes a undulating wind. It sort of goes, sometimes it zips, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it zips, and when it doesn't zip, there's this burst of cold air. So like opening your freezer door out in your yeah. garage, if you've got an outside freezer and, and you know, in the summertime you open it up and, and the blast comes out and you see the fog go into your hot garage. That is a polar vortex. And when it comes down and hits say Florida with cold, it confuses people. It's like, wait a minute, what are they telling me about global warming? But now it's cold in Florida on this polar vortex. Like, right. Well, it's climate change. It's because <laughs> of the warming in the Arctic. But we, we're so led by people who tell us silly things, who, who then make fun of it and say they don't understand it. And who would have thought, yeah, it's cold in Florida, therefore it's not climate change and not global warming. No. Go look it up. It's because of that warming in the Arctic that you're cold in Florida in a polar vortex. And, yeah. And, and really, please, people, you can understand it. We, we, we're not, don't, don't, we, we should not allow ourselves to be led by like sheep. Uh, you know, we should uh, say, no, we can figure this out. Um, we're smart enough to understand this. Which being someone who has lived in Florida, you know, I don't know if I, I should say ashamedly, but my whole life, um, when when those kind of cooler blasts hit us, we were like, "Oh, this is this is nice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is different." Sure. Yeah. But then when you have a Christmas that's eighty five degrees, ninety degrees, you're like, "Oh, this is terrible." Um, so <laughs> we're we're getting both ends there. Now your work with Republic Ian and and trying to help move kind of the goalpost on my own language there, right? On climate change and how we kind of handle it. What is your primary kind of way of trying to help move that, make that happen to where more people are going to be caring about climate change and how we take care of the earth? What's the main kind of work and how how, do, how should we attack this head on? Mostly our work at republician.org is, is just liking fellow conservatives coming to him and saying, you're okay with us. We like you. Um, you, you believe in free people engaged in free enterprise. You, um, you're, you're not the dumb kid in the class. You're actually the smart kid who knows that Milton Friedman was right. That, uh, the way to fix this is not by trying to regulate it, um, or to incentivize it with fickle tax incentives, but rather to, to just price in the negative effect. That's what Phil Donahue, you know, that's, that's what Milton Friedman said on the Phil Donahue show. You know, Phil Donahue, um, you're, you're too young to remember this, Aaron, and a lot of your listeners are. So Phil Donahue was a white guy doing an Oprah show, basically. <laughs> that's who he was. He was a liberal in <laughs> Chicago, um, and uh, it's literally like an Oprah show, except uh, just a white guy doing it. And so uh, he used to get on with uh, Dr. Friedman, who is, of course, one of Reagan's advisors, um, the father of the Chicago School of Economics, um, very conservative uh, fellow. Uh, dead now, but uh, so he says to Friedman one time on the show, he says, oh, what do you do about pollution then, Dr. Friedman? If you don't want to regulate it, Friedman says, you tax it. You tax pollution. Hmm. And then he goes on to explain how it is that when you have somebody producing, say, a, a product, and they are trashing their neighbor's lungs or their neighbor's creek, you can't let them get away with that because right. if you do, there's uh, in, in, in terms of e economics, there's what's called a market distortion. There's a this this guy or gal from that company is selling a product that doesn't have all of its cost reflected in it because he he or she is being able to dump their cost, their waste onto their neighbors, into their lungs, into their creek. And, yeah. and hurting their neighbor while selling what looks like a cheap product. And so Friedman says, you've got to have the government. The government's the only one that can do it. 
Um, you, know, you can't, I mean, the government has to step in and say, time out, guy or gal, you can't do that anymore. You have to clean up the stuff you're putting in the air. You have to clean up the stuff you're putting in the creek because you can't do unto your neighbor what you wouldn't do to yourself. It's a biblical law that actually became English common law that became American common law and that is now reflected in the way that we approach government is you say, you can't do that. You've got to own yeah. those costs. You've got to be accountable, be responsible. And isn't that, that's where we find, answer to your earlier question too, Aaron, is that that's what we find conservatives when they hear this concept of accountability. They know that that is rock solid conservatism, that we conservatives believe that blessings come from accountability. Yeah. Havoc results from lack of accountability. Climate change is that havoc. And so in the Friedman example there, you got to say to that, that guy or gal dumping in the creek or dumping in the air, own it, hold it in, keep on your property that waste, take it to an appropriate dump, do something with it, but don't hurt your neighbor. And, right. and then when that happens, they say, oh, well, that's terrible. You know, I'm going to have to buy some equipment to clean up my stuff I'm sticking in the creek and I'm going to have to scrub my smokestack uh, and that's going to cost money. And then my product is going to have to, I'm going to have to charge more for my product. And what Dr. Friedman would say if he were still alive is, yeah, that's exactly right. And that's yeah. what we want you to do. We want you to have in the price of your product, the actual cost of it. Because across town, there's a competing guy or gal. They don't dump in the creek. They don't dump in the air, but they make a product that's similar, but it's more expensive because they don't have those, they don't dump on their neighbor. <laughs> um, right. They actually right. Are, are accountable and responsible. And so when, when you do that to the guy or gal who's dumping, the person across town suddenly has more customers and the world is better off because they're getting the widget, the thing they needed, the product they needed, but it's now clean. And yeah, they're paying the appropriate price for it. Isn't it appropriate? You can't, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And you, right. once you dump in that neighbor's lungs, they end up at the hospital. Well, then we all end up paying if they're on Medicare or Medicaid, or if they're on Blue Cross Blue Shield and your family's on Blue Cross Blue Shield. Believe me, you pay for that, right. for that hospital admission. Um, and so no such thing as a free lunch. Be accountable. And then blessings flow, which which is a beautiful, beautiful when it comes when we think about that through that kind of theological paradigm, right? Caring for the other, literally doing that very thing that God, the the greatest you know commandment of just loving God and loving people. When we when we live in a sense in a space in which we are purposefully caring for other people, then it should actually bless all people, including ourselves. Absolutely. But, you know, I think about myself, you know, and, and this is my own, my own personal journey in, in taking care of the climate and thinking about these things is that, you know, I like Amazon for a reason because I can find the cheapest thing. I can find, you know, the product that I need at, a, at the cheapest price, which doesn't ever ask me to say, well, what is the actual true cost of this product? Or what's the true cost of every time the new iPhone comes out to get the new iPhone when mine works perfectly fine? And, and I, don't, I don't know if that's something that t typical shoppers, t even typical Christians ever think about in their buying and in their spending of money is what is the actual true cost? And I think about, to some degree, that reality that I remember, especially in the aughts, in the mid-aughts, where there was a big new push to buy everything made in the USA and uh, everything had to have that sticker made in the USA. And that was, if you were shopping for something, do that because it helped America. And I wonder if we just, you know, need to be more aware of the big push towards buying things that are carbon neutral, buying things that are taking care of people rather than the buying of just the cheapest good that saves my bank account. Yeah, that'll certainly help um, as people, people being aware of that and checking it out. And a way that we think that will become automatic uh, so that we actually don't have to do that research on our own is it is is through this 
pricing mechanism. And this is where, you know, you can see how politically it is difficult. It, it, admittedly, uh, smart is hard, dumb is easy. That's one of the things I learned in politics. After 12 years in Congress, that's what I learned. Smart is hard, dumb is easy. Um, you can say dumb things to people and they will, they will cheer you on. You, you say something <laughs> that's smart and hard and they rub their heads because they're like, oh, this guy is just really hard to take. So right. what right. sadly happens is a lot of times politicians tell us really dumb things um, uh, in order to just get us all riled up. Uh, but if what you're just talking about is something where you would go research and find out whether all the costs are accounted to this product. Now, consider the impact, the automatic impact of a carbon tax. And again, politics, that's hard. You know, this is for a carbon tax. What are you talking about, man? I mean, you put a carbon tax on. Here's what happens. Uh, You put a carbon tax at the mine, at the pipeline. Uh, There are less than 2000 companies in America that either mine coal or put stuff in a pipeline that ends up at our gas station. Um, So it's a very small job for the IRS. But still, here's the bad part of that. The price of everything at the end of that pipeline goes up. Yeah. You, put, you put on a $25 per ton price on carbon dioxide, it causes the price of gasoline to go up at your gas station by 21 cents. Okay, not catastrophic, but it is a 21 cent increase in the price of a gallon of gasoline. And it's not going down from there. It's gone up. And now it's not going down. It's not like now where prices go up and up and down, up and down, up and down. No, no, it's right. going up. And it's going to stay up there because of the carbon tax. The price of propane for your grill goes up. The price of plastics that you use in your life go up. And, of course, now, uh, endless for Congress. He wants everything in your life to go up in price. Who wants that? You know, I mean, so, but that's where you have to say, yeah, but we can take, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to give this money back to you in the form of tax cuts elsewhere, or we're going to just literally dividend the money back to you from the carbon tax. So it's like the Alaska permanent fund where the Alaskans get a check in the mail. Um, and so you're going to have money in your pocket. And now everything is not as automatically goes to its true cost because now it's all accounted in there by the carbon tax. If those plastics go up in price, well, it's because they're now paying for their emissions. Um, right. If the price of uh, the propane goes up, well, because it's, you're paying for the emissions. And so then what happens is, well, the propane grill people figure out how to make it more efficient so it burns less propane. Um, right. And the and then you're offered on Amazon or wherever you're going to buy your propane grill, um, a more efficient propane grill um, that uses less propane because now you're, you, you realize how dear it is and you want to save it. And, right. and maybe there's less plastic wrap on things because people say, well, well I don't need, you know, uh, like in a toothpaste box, why do I need a box as well as a tube? Why don't you just sell me the tube? And then I don't need the box. Thank you. Um, and, yeah. uh, and so all of that starts happening, not because the government regulated it, not because somebody came up and wrote regulations and then had a government sedan roll past your house and tell you, good boy, good girl, bad boy, bad girl. Um, no, no. It's just in the price. Make your own decisions at Walmart. If they offer you the tube, just the tube for several uh, for a dime less than the one with the box. Well, make your own choice. You want to take the box (laughs) box home and fill up your garbage can or your recycling bin or you want the tube? Well, I think I want the tube. Thank you. And so then what happens is the box, the box people will dry up. There won't be boxes of toothpaste in 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 the Walmart. It'll be just a tube. And, and it, in, some ways, <laughs> in some ways, it reminds me of that kind of staunch thing, again, being taught growing up of what a true entrepreneur or business person was, which is a constant innovator. Absolutely. And when these things happen, you know, when when we actually put taxes on things to take care of our neighbor, then true innovation will find a way in which you can do the business in a better way that you cannot have to pay that tax because you're already doing it better. 
Right. Right. Yeah. And we're, what we're doing is we are, we are caring for our neighbor. And the, the thing back of that is simple accountability. We are, we are actually being accountable before God and fellow humankind for who, who we are and what we do. And that's a, the blessings flow from that. And so it's, it, it becomes a loving response to people after it's a loving response to God of, of saying, yes, you've, you've established these rules because you are the ruler of the universe and you have put these things in motion. And when we follow those rules, blessings flow. Uh, first of all, we're blessing God for worshiping him, but also then we are blessing our fellow human beings because we're creating a better situation for them yeah. and for us. Now, I have to ask, because we're kind of getting close to our time here, but we're also in, you know, an election year and an election cycle. And so coming from the the unique vantage point that you have as being that person who has been elected to one of those high offices and the work that you do with Republic Ian, I can imagine some listeners may be thinking, well, how do I vote? What's the best way that I can vote? Not the person, but the way, right? In which we can do that. We can better vote for um, taking care of the environment while we still may want to hold on to being a conservative uh, in other parts of our politics. What's some ways that people can manage that tension that seems to be happening right now? Well, I think, you know, my view is that in voting, we're really saying something about ourselves. Uh, we're, we're saying what we want reflected in our country. And that's, uh, I think we really um, should be guided by that right to the heart of the matter about the character, the nature of the country. What do we want it <clears throat> to look like? Because any representative democracy or a constitutional republic is really what we are. Um, the, it's the people reflecting themselves in the government. And so we are responsible for the, the way the country looks and feels. And so I just think it's essential for a believer to really think about that, about what it, how do you want the country to look and feel? Um, yeah. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so uh, it's while we can't expect any political leader to actually reflect uh, all of Christ's likeness, because we all have feet of clay. We, we really do need to examine whether somebody is understanding their feet of clay and relying on grace. That's, that's a, that's a safe person, I think, to follow. Um, but a person who does not, has never asked for forgiveness, let's say, who does not understand grace, um, who in every way exhibits a, uh, uh, a crassness in life, that's a person that a believer should really be concerned about following, seems to me, because, um, uh, you know, uh, we, we there in, in politics, there, there are three ways to look at things. Just now I'm, I'm, I sound like I'm the political science professor giving the, uh, <laughs> the theology professor a test. Uh, is it, uh, it's That's like, good. I'm going to fail it though. I can tell you already. <laughs> it's like this, you know, you can, you can approach politics as, a utilitarian, that's somebody who says we should be after the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Well, please, uh, fellow believers, don't ever follow a utilitarian ethic. It's an awful ethic. It basically would be, well, old people are really a drag on society. Um, just, just kill them off. Um, the, oh, economy, the economy would be better. Um, really, right. you can make that argument as a utilitarian. It's an awful philosophy. Yeah. Um, 
then, okay, don't, don't hold it, but hold back, Bob, go ahead and tell us what you really think of utilitarianism. <laughs> anyway, and so then, uh, or you can be a, what's called a consequentialist. You can believe that the consequences are what matter. Do I get the policies that I want? Is this guy or gal going to give me the policies, the outcomes that I want? Caution here. It sounds okay. Right. But, but here's the problem. That quickly gets to might makes right and the ends justify the means. Yeah. And there have been terrible times in history where believers have fallen in with that and have said, well, it's going to be good for the church. It's going to be good for whatever. We're going to get what we want out of this really evil guy or gal. Right. And it never turns out well. Ask, uh, ask the German people how that turned out. Ask the German church how that turned out yeah. in the 30s and 40s. And then you have the third view, which is the big word deontological view, which is that um, it's always the right time to do the right thing the right way. And that, I submit to you, is the Jesus way, is that you want to do the right thing the right way. And if you do that, good things happen because like we we're just saying, he set up the rules about how this universe works. If you get with those rules and follow them, you'll find blessings. All of us go against them. All of us break them. All of us have feet of clay. All of us need grace. But if you get back up and attempt to follow his ways, there'll be blessings. And so yeah. that's, that's the, that's what I would implore fellow believers in thinking about any election is just to think, okay, now the guy or gal are offering themselves to you. Are they utilitarian, a consequentialist, or uh, are they of the deontological school to do the right thing the right way? And then once they present themselves, ask yourself, and who am I? Who do I want to be? And, and right now, I think not many people struggle with utilitarian, uh, utilitarian ethic because most of us realize that's a, that's a bad thing. But we are in a big struggle right now in America among Christian believers between being a consequentialist or being the ones that do the right thing the right way. Yeah. And I think that that struggle, and I wish we had time, but we don't, but that struggle is a struggle for so many younger people in America, younger Christians who struggle with being told that exact thing, do the right thing at the right time on one hand, but then in, in the political sphere being told to be a consequentialist and it doesn't match up. Yeah. And good for them for noticing it. And they really, these are just like my son got through to me on climate. Hopefully young believers will get to, through to their parents and grandparents. Uh, grandma, you know, you've always taught me to do the right thing the right way. You're departing from that, Grandma, um, in, in being a consequentialist and saying, this guy is going to get me what I want. Yeah. Well, yeah, but how is he going to get it? Does he get it in an honorable way? Does he get it according to the process? Or is he going outside the process? And so there's a, there's a prophetic role that young believers play uh, in, in this situation. And it gives me a lot of hope because I find that among young believers, there's a real commitment to, uh, to these kind of principles that they've been taught well by their parents and grandparents. It's just their parents and grandparents maybe have gotten to the place of fear, uh, of, of, being, of having people scare them, and now yeah. they are grasping for that consequentialist, that that uh, that uh, just just get it done, and uh, 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 might makes right, and ends justify the means. Uh, they're grasping for that, and they need to the their 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 children and grandchildren to to be the young believers who say, "No, you've taught me not to do that, and, right. and let's do it together. Let's do the right thing the right way." That, that's really helpful, I think. And it's also hard because trying to find, I think, maybe in our political reality that 
balance between uh, following Jesus and recognizing what that looks like. And then also trying to find people who are doing the right thing in the right way is becoming increasingly hard. And uh, I know it's a struggle, but I, I have to ask here as we are closing our time, thank you so much for, for doing this with me and bringing this perspective to our listeners. Um, how can people follow along with the work that you're doing? And if they're interested in learning more and kind of being a part of what you do, how can they do that? Well, they can join us at republicen.org. It takes about 45 seconds. Uh, use your email address and uh, your zip code. Then we can uh, know uh, when we're coming to town uh, that we can invite you to things and uh, help you uh, with information, ways that you can uh, be equipped to be uh, that prophetic voice. Um, and so, yeah, it's republicen.org. Join us. It takes about 45 seconds and we'll we'll have you on the list and watch your, watch your email filter after that to make sure that our first thing is getting through to you so that you'll be updated with helpful information and stuff that you can share with people. Now, you also have a podcast, I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. I just learned about it and I've just been enjoying it. So what's that podcast for everyone? Yes, it's Eco Right Speaks. Eco, E-C-O, Right, R-I-G-H-T, Speaks. And so we're the Eco Right. We're a balance to the environmental left. Um, and so uh, join us at Eco Right Speaks. That's our podcast. Perfect. Hey, Bob, thank you for taking your time out of your day to do this with me. It's been a pleasure and a joy, and I've learned so much. Uh, and you get an A-plus in my book in any theology. <laughs> oh, good. Well, thanks. And, and you're doing real well in politics, if I'm, I'm the practical uh, uh, politics preacher, I guess, or teacher. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. It's not very easy to do well at, so thank you. Uh, hopefully, we'll, we'll get together again soon. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron.